So first things first, me and Zach have been doing Happy Hour together for well over 400 episodes. That's at least eight years. It's been a long time. It's been a great run. Uh, but sadly, all good things do have to come to an end at some point. And Zach now is taking up more publishing responsibilities, doing some great work writing stories on 9to5mac.com. And that means he's having to focus on that more. So he doesn't have time to do the podcast anymore, unfortunately. So that is the end of the Zach and Benjamin run of Happy Hour, at least for now. Um, but I am very thrilled to say that we have a new full-time co-host. You've heard him before on the show. It is Chance Miller. Hello, Chance. Hello, Mayo. I'm I'm excited, but also you just saying it's been 400 episodes in eight years. I'm a little nervous now. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it had been a long time, but eight years. Yeah, it might even be longer than that, depending on how you count. But yeah. Because remember when Happy Hour first started, it was like a big group thing. Mm-hmm. We live streamed. Happy Hour started originally before I was at 9 to 5 Mac. Oh, and yeah. And it was like six people going around a bit. And then I think that I think that went on for about 50 episodes. Um, And then me and Zach took over full time since then. So, yeah, I think it's been about eight or nine years where we've done an episode almost every single week, I think, for the entire run. Pretty crazy. I was thinking about that. Have you taken a week off in 400 episodes? We have individually, but there's always been an episode. Okay. So, like, oh. we've had, like, other people come in or whatever. Or, like, you know, I, I was off and Zach did it with somebody else or whatever for a while, or Zach was off and I did it with you or Jeff or something. But, yeah, because we always, around, like, Christmas time, when a lot of other shows take weeks off, yeah. we always just, like, pre-record something, so... We filled the slot. I think we are going to get a nice little back and forth going. I mean, it'll take us some time. Like you said, it's been eight years with Zach, but I think me and you are getting there. I agree. I agree. So do you want to jump in with the first story? Let's do it. So iOS 17 beta 2 came out yesterday. And while we were waiting for these updates to download, I realized how beta 2s are pretty usually minor. There's Apple hasn't had a whole lot of time to address feedback from beta 1. And actually, this beta 2 build we found was compiled on June 10th, so basically less than a week after WWDC. Yeah, and, and just because it's compiled on the 10th, like the that's when it was like actually built on the on like the you know the right. the, inf- yeah. the the integration infrastructure at Apple. The actual code that goes into it is like weeks old before that. Like the you know the chain of command, there's like QA testing or in between. So you know you're probably looking at a good week, two weeks before. So like the right. beta two is like frozen, you know, code frozen before the keynote happens in almost every single case, every single year. And like when the beta two comes out, i.e., right this week beta 3 is being frozen so like you're always one step behind so you're like as an outsider when you're you know thinking about what the community is talking about or like feedback and stuff um you always have to think about that lag being there because it's just a fact and that's why you don't generally see like responses to stuff that people are complaining about beta 1 until like yeah. beta 4 time frame as we saw um you know when the whole safari redesign happened with iOS mm-hmm. 14 and there was like the huge back and forth about that uh, it kind of stayed stable for like three releases. And there were some people at the time saying, well, clearly Apple thinks this design is best. They're not going to change it. And it's like, not really. They just haven't actually had time to show you any of the, you know, response to that feedback. And sure enough, you know, four, five, six, seven, Safari changed quite a lot. Um, but I would say for iOS 17 beta one, there there is not a like Safari standard in terms of 
is a big problem that actually sorting no. out and everybody's like chomping at the bit to get changed. Like, I think the only thing really is like performance and stability, obviously, from the, you know, in terms of the beta season uh, yeah. and battery life and stuff. But there's no like feature they've introduced where I'm like, that's just misguided or misdesigned. I don't know. I think you probably agree with that, right? Yeah, there's not really anything. I've had a, I've had a lot more bugs, I think, than at least what I've seen some other people saying. But like you said, that doesn't, things like performance and optimization and battery life, those are usually towards the end too. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in beta two, we did get a couple things. So the new ability with AirDrop to bump two phones together to share info, that's finally active after not being in beta one. Now, I was a little bit confused on this. You can use it for more than just the name drop feature. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're, I believe if you're on the home screen, then it shares the contact information with the like the name drop poster and, you, and your contact card. And I think the the UI isn't fully there yet for that. So like even on beta two, you have now you have the cool animation, which like sucks at the top yeah. of the screen, which looks cool. But like if you look at the WWC video, when you bump the phones together, it like comes up on the screen with like your name contact poster and their contact poster. And it says like accept or decline. I don't think that's actually in in yet. At least I haven't seen it. Um, so that's still to come in terms of like the, the refinement on the interface. But yeah, if you're then in like a context where you're sharing a file, so either if you're directly in the AirDrop modal, you know, you like go on the share sheet and you go onto AirDrop, mm-hmm. or if you're in a context where like the apps told the system you're looking at a file that can be shared, um, then it bumping the phones together will just automatically start an AirDrop session for that file. And one thing still that's not active is how AirDrop... So if you initiate an AirDrop transfer... And then the two phones separate, so like a bigger file. Eventually, that transfer will continue over the internet, but Apple says that's not even coming till later this year. Yeah, so not iOS 17 cycle, like 17.1, 17.2 kind of situation. Yeah. But the bump NFC thing, that seems to be a pretty useful thing. I mean, not going to change the game, but there's, I mean, I know there's plenty of instances where for whatever reason, that other person doesn't show up in the little airdrop picker. Yeah, especially now when you can't even be on everyone. Like that's true. You, yeah, you, like since they did that change into last year, where now it's everyone for ten minutes, it automatically reverts back to contacts only. And the contacts only recognition has always been a bit—I don't know if it's unreliable. It's just a bit unclear about what it's actually using to like know if you or other person has a contact to share. And like, I think it goes off like phone numbers. And if the person has you in the phone book as with the plus forty-four on the front, or you know, the, like the area code, or if they don't, then it doesn't match. Then it doesn't find you sometimes. So like, there's always been a bit of confusion around that in terms of you know, is it actually showing up or not? And um, so that's why I always just left my airdrop on everyone, and mm-hmm. because I don't go out much, I never got all the random spam. Or uh, you know, that at least people get when you go in the middle of big cities and stuff. Um, but theoretically, with the NFC feature that's now being introduced, you don't have to worry about that because it can just do it based off proximity. And, and not, um, you know, having to do the contacts filtering. I have also seen some um, conspiracy theorists say that this is a continuation of the change for everyone to 10 minutes, specifically targeting countries like China, where, you know, they obviously locked it down because the Chinese government was unhappy that there was this, like, free-form mm-hmm. information sharing going on. And now it's like, well, now you can only do it when you're directly standing next to each other. Um, which, an argument that might have some weight if the airdrop itself had been removed but that's not the case this is just like an additional thing and so you can't really say that the addition of the bumping feature is a thing going against the government unless they take the next step and actually get rid of 
you know, the wireless sharing at a distance via airdrop. Yeah, and this does seem to fill that. I hadn't thought about that. The gap that was left by them reducing that everyone option to 10 minutes, because if you wanted to share like your contact information with somebody nearby, you'd have to go into settings, enable it, share whatever you need to share, and repeat that over and over again. So the, the, the tap thing is actually going to be more useful now that I think about it that way. But beyond airdrop tapping in beta 2, there's not much else. Uh, on iPadOS beta 2, there's you can now, via Spotlight, you can shift click on an app icon and it'll automatically add that app to your current workspace and stage manager. This is something Apple added in iPadOS 17 and it worked with the docs or pretty much anywhere else you can shift click and it adds that current app to your current stage instead of opening it in a new stage. But Spotlight support was missing for that, but it's now here. I don't know about you, Mayo, but on the iPad, I've been trying to use Stage Manager more in iPadOS 17, and this is actually one of the changes I think that helps quite a bit. Yeah, I don't actually have an iPad at the moment, so that's a that's a blocker. But I am more in... I like I'm, The improvements to Stage Manager definitely make me more keen to pick one up when they do the next iPad Pro revision, mm-hmm. probably early 2024 kind of kind of timescale we're kind of expecting. Um, because it finally feels like they've done enough to actually make it like worthwhile to spend you know, a grand plus on an iPad and actually be able to use it for something practical, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Because like otherwise I'd be, I'd only be like, when I had my old iPad uh, Pro, I just ended up using it for like Twitter and watching video. And I mean, it's great for watching yeah. Twitter and video and like bed and stuff, but like you can't really justify owning a whole iPad just for that to happen. So adding these productivity features, including the improvements to stage manager, definitely, definitely helps. Yeah, because before the only way to open a new app in Stage Manager was in a new workspace entirely. So there would just be windows flying all over the place. You'd be dragging things around trying to get them on the same workspace. And yeah, for me, it was just utter chaos, but this helps quite a bit. I think at some point, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about how I'm trying to work with iPadOS, but we'll see about that and how long it actually lasts. Yeah, because the the windowing changes where now it's just like less smart about yeah that windows too. around uh is a big is a big boost because it just makes it more like a mac really which is what a lot of people wanted and and so they've kind of delivered it on a plate so yeah fingers crossed um at least you know it's not the it's not like a revolutionary change to the way it, it to the whole to the whole thing but i don't think it needed that it just needed those edges no. that were just big blockers to go away and it, it would take us a little bit longer to really like digest it and process it and work out you know the gimmick versus the the novelty or whatever um but Fingers crossed, yeah, we'll, we'll circle back on Stage Manager uh, in a few weeks as the beta period continues and see how it's going. Uh, one thing I wanted to flag from beta 2 was that the crossfade feature for music now actually works. Yes, finally. Because um, on beta 1, the crossfade toggle appeared in the settings app, but you like clicked on it and it just crashed the settings app immediately. Uh, so that was a bit unfortunate. Um, but now it does actually work. And there's a slider, so you can actually choose the duration of the crossfade uh, from like one second up to like 12 seconds. Uh, so you can ha- that's and that's bring in the incredible technology that's been on iTunes on <laughs> desktop for you know, more than a decade, if not since iTunes existed, and has even been on Apple Music for Android for several years at this point. So they're finally bringing that to the iPhone with iOS 17, which is nice. And the fact that it crashed instantly in beta one just felt like a troll because we've all been asking for this for so long, and then they yeah. added it, and then it didn't work. So it works well though. Even I noticed in CarPlay it works, which I was a little 
worried about just because CarPlay always kind of lags a little bit behind what's happening on your phone, but works perfectly. It's just long overdue. Yeah, one thing I'm kind of waiting to see if they add it to the HomePod operating system. So, like, are you going to the home oh, app yeah. and you can change it there and make it work? Because right now there's no there's no setting for it. But I also don't have the HomePod betas installed. But as far as I know, even if you've got the beta, it doesn't actually make a difference at the moment. Even if you're air playing from your phone, like the phone I, is the one I, I doing the playback? I, I, okay. Airplay probably works, but I don't actually know. Yeah, Because a lot of the time when you airplay to a HomePod, it converts it to, like, a HomePod native playback session anyway. Yeah. It tries. If you're, air, anyway. if you're actually air playing, then yeah, the crossfade will work. But I don't know about the other the other case. But outside of beta two, we have a couple other things in iOS seventeen. One thing, so Mayo, if you're, I know you don't drive, but let's say you're having some car problems, would you be able to look at your dash and recognize what all those little warning signs mean? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> There's loads of little symbols. <laughs> And Apple has you covered because so the visual lookup feature, which is what you take a picture or now a video. And the Photos app does some little scanning to recognize different things in that picture. So one thing Apple has pointed out quite a bit is you take a picture of a dog and it'll tell you what attempt to tell you what breed that dog is. I found that works pretty well, actually. In iOS 17, it also now works for those symbols on your car's dashboard. So take a picture of whatever error messages you're seeing, and it'll pop up a little message showing what it thinks those symbols mean and a quick explanation of what might be wrong and how you can fix it. And even if you don't drive like me, this also, at least ostensibly, is meant to work for labels on clothing. So you know like, you know, like the, oh, machine, yeah. the no washing machine thing? Um, so I try, I tried it because they showed this off in like the keynote or whatever, and so I tried it like that day, but it didn't work. Um, but again, visual lookup is one of those things where A, you know, not necessarily all the features get implemented immediately and B, it's very region dependent. So like different different detection That's true. works in different countries. So maybe this works in the US already. It doesn't, just doesn't, doesn't work in UK. But at least in theory, what they've shown is that you can like scan the label on your like shirt and it can tell you like, oh, that means, you know, washing machine friendly or, you know, not machine washable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, also it works for car for car symbols, which is a cool little addition. Then also, you spotted this this morning. So a new setting for haptic touch that's now fast. Is that right? It's sort of like, yeah. it feels a lot like 3D touch, but it's not 3D touch. Yeah, because obviously the modern phones don't even have press-sensitive yeah, displays right. in them anymore. Um, but back in the day when you know the 3D touch was the thing that they were advertising, you could actually do those previewing actions very quickly because it didn't have to wait for the timeout for your finger to be on the screen. It could just immediately say like, oh, you're pushing down hard. Let's let's trigger it. So it could be almost instantaneous. Uh, they got rid of the 3D touch starting with the iPhone XR um, and then the year after with the iPhone 11 series, all iPhone models um, going forward, they got rid of 3D touch. And their solution was this like haptic touch thing, which is a brand name for long press because it's just a long press, but with a haptic vibration when it detects it. Um, and so since haptic touch has been a thing, there's always been two settings in terms of the speed. So there was fast and there was slow. It used to default to fast. Um, and that's just basically control how long you have to hold down on something for it to actually perform the action. And this applies to things like, you know, when you long press on a photo for it to like pop up in a little preview window or on a link or for, the, you know, this is very common place in iOS now, all those little like context menus or they can appear with a with a long press too, and that they always fall under this like haptic touch setting. Um, but up to iOS 17, there was only two options: fast and slow. 
In iOS 17, there's now three options, fast, default, and slow. It's a bit confusing because ah, the fast okay. options still exist, but what the default option is what the old fast was. And fast is now even faster than the old fast. Okay. And if you, I tried it side by side this morning, and it, it really is significantly different. So, like, default, there's probably about, you know, like, half a second of delay between long pressing and it, like, popping open. Uh, say on the fast mode, it's more like uh, 200 milliseconds, like a quarter, you know, maybe a quarter of a second. It feels a lot quicker to do it. Obviously, this comes at the expense of the possibility of more false positives, because obviously, if you just happen to, like, lay your finger on the screen for, a, you know, a quarter of a second it's going to activate right and um, which is why the default is still the old default but you can optionally now go into the accessibility settings and turn on the super fast one if you're like confident and can you know fly through the interface and you know what you're doing so so far i've turned it on and i don't think i'd be going backwards so do you think it helps make up for the lack of 3d touch like more so than previously i mean it's definitely better um, yeah at this point, it's been so long since 3D Touch was around that like people have just got used to it being slower. But if you do go back to an old phone and you do the same, you know, peak and pop gesture, it's way quicker on the old phone. So this this faster duration definitely gets you closer to that. But I don't think it's ever going to be able to be the default just because, you know, an average person will accidentally do it when they don't mean to. Because if you watch certain people use their phones, they literally will like open something they're reading and just rest their finger on mm -hmm. the screen the entire time. Yeah. And, and trying to explain to someone like a tap versus like a press a press like, yeah is really hard like especially you know stereotypical especially for older people who aren't you know it's just a reality they didn't grow up with this stuff and you know you tell them to like click on something or tap on something and they like push the screen in it's like mm, you don't need to push the screen in uh but that's why they make the defaults what they are but at least now if you're you know confident with touchscreen operating system you can go in there and turn on the fast mode and it will speed some interactions up then also, I guess this was a little bit of a server side change this week. So iOS 17 and macOS Sonoma will now automatically generate a passkey for your Apple ID that you can use on apple.com, iCloud.com, pretty much any Apple subdomain. So passkeys are the industry-wide tech that attempts to replace passwords by using biometrics. And Apple's been a big proponent of passkeys for a while now. Always talking about the passwordless future. So what iOS 17 seems to add for Apple accounts is Apple kind of finally putting their money where their mouth is on this. But it's only on the web right now. So it doesn't work on your phone for signing in or authenticating things like App Store purchases. So it's just Apple.com. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, if they're going to evangelize it for everybody else to do, they should do it themselves. And Google <laughs> added it recently for like your entire Google account, which I think led to quite, an, quite a few people asking Apple to do something similar. And this is kind of a step in the right direction, but it's still only on the web. Yeah, and, and to be fair, Apple did have like their proprietary system right, that still yeah. exists, where like you go on like the Apple ID page and it will like pop up the login for the in for the logged in user id right so like that's kind of pass keys but a proprietary implementation of it but, you know the same result you just do your fingerprint and it logs you in um, i guess this but, is good for cross-platform too since pass keys work anywhere yeah exactly if you're on windows especially you can just you know right using your phone and get right in or whatever um you because you do have to remember most people that have an iphone are using windows on desktop they're not using macs because macs don't sell in the same quantities um so yeah this is great for them to roll out uh, as you can probably tell from any time you interact with the, you know, an Apple service, 
Apple ID is just like a really old system, so I think it just took them a long time to like make this work. But here we are, so that's a good that's a good sign. Yeah, and I've noticed still throughout iOS 17, there's places where it should bring up when you're signing into your Apple ID, it should bring up the password little uh, option where you tap and it views all your passwords and you can mm -hmm. autofill, and it still doesn't. I don't know what's taking so long, but it actively encourages people not to have very long passwords when you have that roadblock in the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, one last thing I mentioned from uh, this week's beta uh, season. This isn't iOS, this is actually on macOS. So um, on Sonoma Beta 1, they added those aerial like screensavers um, natively, but they weren't actually screensavers. They were like desktop wallpapers that animated on the lock screen and they would like come to a rest when you unlocked. But... I don't know about you, Chance, but I like never lock my Mac because it's just in like stationary at home. So like, mm -hmm. or, you know, you, or even if the Mac is locked, it unlocks with Touch ID or by the Apple Watch instantly. So you never actually get a chance to see the lock screen, really. Um, and so when they announced this in WWDC, uh, I was saying on the show, well, I wish they'd have actually just done it as normal screensavers, not as this weird like, you know, animated lock screen thing. Well, it turns out that is now an option too. So on Sonoma Beta 2, when you look at the aerials, there's a little like checkbox which says show as screensaver, and then it works just like a screensaver does. So there you go. That's how you can make it work, which is nice. Yeah, I've been using that third-party app. I think it's called Arial mm -hmm. for a long time, and it, it works, but it's nice to have this native. Even though one thing our colleague Jeff Benjamin pointed out is that it seems like the footage that Apple is using is not super high quality. So if you're using something like the Pro Display XDR, it's going to look a little bit fuzzy, but hopefully that gets better with time. But for yeah, now, I mean, on Apple TV, it's 4K. So right, exactly. They'll give you 4K videos on the Mac, at, at least by launch time. Happy Hour This Week is brought to you by Masterclass. So I generally cook the same meals, you know, chicken, veg, spaghetti, that kind of thing. But I figured why not try something different and try to get be better at cooking for a change. So now I'm learning how to make pasta dough and make ravioli from scratch with instructions from the renowned chef, Alice Waters. I'm not 100% confident at it yet, uh, don't get me wrong, but the learning and the sense of accomplishment is very satisfying. I'm getting there. And how exactly? Well, I'm using Alice Waters home cooking lessons on Masterclass. Check them out at masterclass.com slash 9to5Mac. Masterclass has some amazing videos. Food is just one of the categories that they have. I mean, where else can you find 30 lessons on filmmaking from Martin Scorsese? I was watching that actually on their Apple TV app, and you can hear Scorsese himself talk about the movie making process and how he expanded his understanding over time i love learning about you know smart people doing smart things about their craft all those little details and it it really makes me appreciate the art of film even more and with masterclass you can learn from the best to become your best anytime anywhere and at your own pace from just ten dollars a month you can get unlimited access to every instructor thousands of online lessons exclusive content insights and much more and I mentioned filmmaking, but there's so many topics to dive into. You have uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger talking about business strategy. You have chefs like Alice Waters and Gordon Ramsay on how to cook incredible food. So much more. There's so much variety and something for everyone. With over 180 classes to choose from, you can always be learning something new from top class instructors. Gain new skills in as little as 10 minutes with the Masterclass app available on your phone, computer, tablet, smart TV. And there's even an audio mode so you can listen on the go on your phone. Uh, get unlimited access to every class. And right now, as a happy hour listener, you can get 15% off when you go to masterclass.com slash 9to5Mac. That's masterclass.com slash 9to5Mac for 15% off an annual membership. Masterclass.com slash 9to5Mac. Thanks to Masterclass 
for sponsoring the show. All right, so maybe even more interesting than iOS 17 is the Vision OS SDK is now available for developers. So this is what Apple promised after WWDC to give developers a way to get their apps ready for Vision Pro before it's available in early 2024. So the Vision OS SDK, it includes a simulator, which you can download, and it's actually been pretty cool to see. It basically gives you the full experience of Vision OS just simulated on your Mac, which is the same as the iOS simulator, but I think we expected, at least I did, maybe a more limited experience, especially at the start, rather than Apple kind of giving people free reign over Vision OS this early. Yeah, there's quite there's quite a lot there. Like they have like the Maps app there, and they have some other applications there, which does match the iOS simulators. Um, but yeah, I was kind of expecting it to be slightly more, maybe maybe not from any like um, secrecy standpoint, just from the fact that it's not right. quite finished yet. Like I was expecting it to be a bit more stripped down and maybe like only have the settings app and then the ability to launch your application. But they at least have some demos from the other apps on the system, and you can tell it's early because like launching some of these apps like Maps. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a load of like visual glitches and some things pop up that shouldn't be there. And some of the iconography is low res and not fully finished. Like the app icons, for instance, like, you know, it's, it's first and foremost, it's a simulator designed to make it so that developers start making apps for the platform. Um, secondarily, you know, we can look at it to get a bit of a taste of, about the vision experience uh, before the thing ships in, you know, nine months time. Um, so you can see if you like open the settings app on it, you can get an idea about like the, um, the UI structure of you know standard stock um, vision apps with mm-hmm. like the toolbar design and the back button it kind of looks a bit like um, watchOS 10 so like the navigation bar has like this kind of blurred gradient behind it which looks really nice and like the back button's like in a circle just like it is on the on the Apple watch now um, and obviously all of the native vision OS apps have this kind of like material translucent background um, so that's really what distinguishes the apps that run out of the box just from like uh, uncompiled apps on the iPad versus ones that have started being made for VisionOS natively, you can tell by the background because all the stuff that is like an iPad app just running um, in the compatibility mode, it's literally just like an opaque window. Uh, whereas when you see, because developers on Twitter and Amazon have already been showing some examples of them just like recompiling for VisionOS natively and showing what that looks like. And basically they all get um, the translucent background effect and you can start going further with the pop-out windows and the little ornaments, you know, the little thing, the little controls that attach to the main yeah. window and stuff. Uh, but the biggest tell from the get-go is just the, the metrics look a bit different and the background's translucent rather than opaque. <laughs> and then something yeah, else cool. we... Yeah, and we learned also finally that guest mode will be a thing on Vision OS so you can let other people interact with your Vision Pro and... It'll be an opt-in thing where Vision Pro can opt in to enable guest mode. It's, I don't know, I see why this feature is there and I see why people want it. But realistically, because of how perfected the Vision Pro hardware is to your specific head, it's going to be hard to share this thing regardless of whether software-wise guest mode is there. Yeah, because like the fit of the light seal and the band will be different from head to head. But they kind of need some way of like you know you're the guy who spent three and a half grand that your friends come around (laughs) you know like it's just a fact like there's a virality to it of like this is cool for five minutes so please let me give it a go and so guest user mode basically seems to lock the system down from um 
like it will use your like optic id you know eye recognition mm-hmm. so that you can't access sensitive information just like on the iphone today how certain apps have like um ways to lock behind face ID recognition like you know the deleted folder in, fi- in photos or like the now in the iOS 17 private browsing tabs are also locked behind face ID as well so that kind of thing will apply to the guest mode so the guest can't log in um you can at least based on the simulator uh, information we can see, you can like set a passcode to allow certain apps access. You can do some mm-hmm. sort of filtering. But mostly I think this is just like a way for you to be able to like, hey, put this on for five seconds and you know play this game or watch this video for a minute and just get an idea about what the headset's like. When you turn on guest mode, when the user puts it on, it will like do the calibration thing, which I believe you did, right? At WWC yourself where you see the yes. like dots and you have to like look at them and whatever. So it will calibrate the software for the guest mode experience. Um, which is nice. You don't have to reset every time if you just want your friend to try it out. But obviously, the physical hardware doesn't change. So yeah, you're always going to have that that issue. And Apple did say that the strap, the headband is replaceable or swappable. So theoretically, you could have different sized straps at least to make it fit better on other people in your house or friends or whatever. But yeah, things yeah. like the light seal and stuff, that's always going to be a problem. And there, there's no, like, evidence yet that there's, like, proper multi-user support. So, yeah. like, you're not really going to, like, you can't really get, like, a separate headband for, like, you and your, you know, your, your significant other and be like, well, no, you can use it to watch movies and stuff because you're still, you know, you're in the guest user mode. You're not in, like, the, the permanent secondary account mode. But, you know, it's been 13 years and they don't have that on the iPad either. So that wasn't really a surprise. No. It's, just, it's just a reality of the, of the thing. I explained it to somebody, I think, at WWDC, I was like, if Apple introduced the Mac today, do you think it would have multi-user support? And my assumption is, at least on the laptops, absolutely not. It's just not something Apple wants to do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's nice for them. They get people to buy more devices. but Exactly. It also just makes it simpler for them in terms of like implementation. There's less to worry about. I think, you know, if you look at the iPad, I don't think it's like a... It's not an ultimatum. Like, they're never going to do it. It's just low yeah. down on the priority list yeah so like and they do it in certain cases for education and stuff so there's like certain hacks they already have in the system to make it usable in enterprise and school environments so you can have multiple users you know pseudo signed into one ipad and stuff and it like switched between them and stuff um they just haven't productized it for like the mass market they might do it eventually but it's not like i, I mean the market's shown that people aren't like not buying ipads because it doesn't have multiple users that's just not what happens people some people you know get an ipad and then they do use it amongst multiple people and just make up for the fact that it is kind of suboptimal yeah uh so you know on that on that on that axis i'm sure one day one version of ios will give you multiple use support it's just not a priority then also for vision pro we already knew this but apple kind of reconfirmed it that it'll open developer labs next month for developers in Cupertino, London, Munich, Shanghai, Singapore, and Tokyo. So this is where developers can go to get hands-on time to try their apps on Vision Pro with the hardware. And then Apple engineers will also be there to answer questions and provide support. Then also next month, Apple's going to open applications for developers to receive test hardware for Vision Pro. So this is more interesting that theoretically next month, some version of Vision Pro will be in the hands of people outside Apple. I'm sure under extreme NDA and legal uh, silence. It's not going to be as easy to get Vision Pro developer hardware 
as it was to get like that Mac mini with Apple Silicon, which even like I got and even I'm not a real developer. <laughs> yeah, they'll probably want a bit more evidence to get a, a Vision Pro dev kit and I'm sure you have to buy it and, you know, be sworn to secrecy, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure that the dev kit that does arrive doesn't have, uh, it won't be kitted out to work like, um, what, like the demo you got at WWC, for instance. Right. It'll be like the simulator experience. Uh, that's just that's just the fact. So, you know, most people who, uh, who aren't actually making software for the thing won't have any interest in getting one. And like you said, I'm pretty sure the supply is way more limited than it was for the developer transition kit for Apple Silicon. Um, so they'll be a bit more selective in, in handing it out, I'm sure. So our friend Ming-Chi Kuo, speaking a little bit of Vision Pro, I'm not entirely sure I get the connection he made here. Same. <laughs> but he says that the iPhone 15 this year will have an upgraded ultra-wideband chip for, he claims, deeper integration with Vision Pro. He says that the ecosystem is one of the key factors in Vision Pro being successful, which is probably true. But he also says that as part of this, the iPhone 15 needs an upgraded ultra-wideband chip with better power consumption and improved performance. So this is the U1 chip inside the iPhone now. So I guess it'll be called the U2 chip. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. What do you think about his connection to the Vision Pro here? Because I don't really get it. I don't really get it either. I mean, you look at the Vision Pro demos they've done so far, and I don't think any of it depends on a nearby interaction via the U1 chip with local proximity to an iPhone. Like... I mean, part of the June demo was definitely trying to show this as like a standalone device. So maybe there are, you know, um, continuity kind of features that they just haven't prioritized mm-hmm. showing because it doesn't follow the main messaging. Like they wanted to show the Vision Pro hardware as a standalone thing. They wanted to like set it up as its own product line, less like an Apple Watch, which is more like an iPhone accessory, right? Um, so maybe there is some stuff that the iPhone does in concert with the Vision Pro that they just haven't shown yet. Maybe along the same lines as like the Mac thing where you can you know, look at the Mac and it projects the screen in front of you. Maybe there's similar handoff situations with the phone. Like I could imagine, um, you know, if you if you get something on the iPhone and then you put the headset on, you can hand off from the phone to the headset, for instance. Like there's probably some stuff like that that they just haven't demoed yet and is enhanced by the U1 chip, um, the ultra wideband. But I don't think any of it's like going to be particularly like critically essential. The upgrade... Yeah. I mean, Quo's very accurate in terms of hardware upgrades, right? So I'm sure that the iPhone 15 does have an upgraded uh, U1 chip. He says the production process is moving from 16 16 nanometers to 7 nanometers, which will give it better performance and better battery life um, because of the the process shrink. Uh, But I don't don't immediately see any connection to uh, the Vision Pro. What you do see, though, is Apple depending on nearby interaction features more, just in like the things we already talked about this episode, like the bumping right. feature for, for for name drop and that kind of thing. So they will always be better off by having, you know, a more responsive, more accurate ultra wideband hardware inside. And then for iPhone 16 next year, Quos says that Apple is working on Wi-Fi 7 support. <laughs> so this is like the next generation wi-fi alliance standard that supposedly is going to be a pretty big upgrade but what, just like wi-fi 6 was well exactly and then <laughs> apple only adopted wi-fi 6 in 2019 and then wi-fi 6e in 2020 
which was like sev- two years at least after they were both introduced. So Wi-Fi 7 will be next year, maybe. But you won't get the full experience unless you also upgrade all of your routers at home to Wi-Fi 7. And I looked on Amazon, and that's going to run you at least like 1500 bucks. Yeah, they're expensive. I mean, so, well, I mean, I, if, I mean it, practically, what did Wi-Fi 6 do? I have a Wi-Fi 6 uh, router, and I couldn't tell you the difference between that and Wi-Fi 5. Like. Well, and the iPhone doesn't even support Wi-Fi 6E yet. It's only the few of the Macs and the, and the iPad, new iPad Pro. Yeah. So the M2 go, iPad does. But, presumably, yeah. that would mean 6E on the iPhone this year, then immediately to 7 next year, but... I don't know. I mean, go for it, I guess. But like, yeah, I don't think there's any like. It's like the honestly, like five G was overhyped, and Apple yeah. overhyped that. And I, I mean, I said it at the time, like it's not really going to change anything about your iPhone experience. And sure enough, it didn't. Uh, and then at the time, there was like, oh well, it's only because of the pandemic. Everybody's at home. Whenever we're out about again, it will make a difference. And, I mean, uh-huh. three years on, I think we can agree it didn't make a difference. It's just, it's just not that. Like anything you can do on your phone now is so fast and very rarely bound by network speed in most cases you know like there are some very 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 small exceptions but for the most part things you're doing on your phone are perfectly fast over current you know mobile data or wi-fi specs that any upgrades in that department are very subtle Uh, it's just a reality so for 5g we had the verizon ceo on stage maybe for wi-fi 7 we'll have like the Comcast CEO. I think everybody loves Comcast. <laughs> that, maybe maybe we'll, we'll have an Apple um, Silicon C, uh, engineer talking about how they designed their very custom-owned Wi-Fi chips, right? Because that's the rumor going around. That, that yeah, that's true. They're going to do their own Bluetooth and Wi-Fi chips at some point, although they also renewed contracts with Broadcom not so not so recently, not so uh, long ago. So maybe that's also further out. Uh, we'll see. I mean, look, if they're going to if they're going to adopt newer wireless standards faster than they have in the past, that's great. But I don't, I'm not like begging, I'm not like sitting here today being like, if only I had Wi-Fi 7, I could (laughs) do so much more. It's just not really. The thing that makes Wi-Fi better is mesh. And you can do that on Wi-Fi 5. Like, it's just a, I mean, mesh is a hack, or it's not really designed in the Wi-Fi standard. It's like a hack, but it's a hack that really works because you just get more antennas covering more space. So I have a mesh router downstairs and I have a mesh router upstairs. And it, you know, that has been the biggest change in terms of wireless signal compared to any other upgrade of wi-fi that's ever existed Mm -hmm. um wi-fi 7 is will be in that iterative bin (laughs) i mean this is like beating a dead horse at this point too but when i was writing this it just made me think of how easier how much more simplified this could be if apple still sold routers their own routers yeah especially if they want to control like supposedly all this interaction between all of their devices over wi-fi 7 or mesh or Anything like that, but I mean, there's not even any rumors of Apple planning to re-enter that market. So, yeah, they seem to be struggling to even ship like home products they want to make, like the yeah the smart display speakers and stuff, or the you know the the weird soundbar combo thing with the Apple TV that's been rumored for many years. And I feel like what we saw this year at WWC was them being like. You know the the hardware uh, division's d- dysfunctional in that regard, so we'll just let you do FaceTime with an iPhone <laughs> on an Apple TV <laughs> instead. You know what I mean? It felt like yeah. that was like, well, we can't we can't keep waiting on waiting for our hardware to be available, so just do it do it this way if you want to. And so people are going to this full. 
Happy Hour This Week is also brought to you by ZocDoc. We've all been there, feeling unwell and randomly Googling online trying to find a cause for some symptoms we've been having. You stumble down a rabbit hole of advice from so-called experts. Well, there are better ways to get the answers that you want from trusted professionals, not random people on the internet. And that's ZocDoc. ZocDoc helps you find expert doctors and medical professionals that specialize in the care that you need. And ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them and treat almost every condition under the sun. Go to ZocDoc.com slash happy hour to get the app and sign up for free. You can book an appointment with a qualified doctor with ease. Find the right doctor in your neighborhood that meets your needs, takes your insurance and fits in with your schedule. Feel confident by reading the verified patient reviews. Then book an appointment in just a few taps and start feeling better faster using the free app that millions of users are relying on. So go to ZocDoc.com slash happy hour and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. Once again, that's ZocDoc.com slash happy hour. ZOCDOC.com slash happy hour. Thanks to ZocDoc for sponsoring the show. I don't know about you, Mayo, but I used to get a lot of my health advice from Reddit, and that's not so easy nowadays. So maybe give ZocDoc a try. <laughs> you can't get advice on Reddit anymore. Can you even go on Reddit anymore? Depends on where you try to go. <laughs> you might see some things you don't want to see in certain subreddits, but uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway, another press release from Apple this week, an expansion of the self-service repair program. So the parts and tools and manuals through this program are now available for the iPhone 14, the 13-inch M2 MacBook Air, and the MacBook Pro with M2 Pro and M2 Max. But the bigger news here is an update to the system configuration process. So this is something that if you do a repair yourself on things like Touch ID, Face ID, or displays, cameras, stuff like that, you'd have to call even Apple. Yeah. Even, uh, even batteries. You'd have to call Apple after you completed the hardware repair, and they would run the system configuration on their end to confirm the repair was using genuine parts and all of that. So that was a step in the process, but now you can run that system configuration process yourself, which eliminates that need to call Apple. Yeah, why Why was it set up the other way? Like, it was such a stupid arrangement. You, you'd, have to, you'd have to call someone on the phone, so Apple would have to run a call center all day long, all year long, so that occasionally someone could phone up and say, I've just done a repair on my phone that I bought with parts through your website. So they're all official parts, right? Please, can you validate that it's been done? And so they would run a remote diagnostics check that would run on your phone, submit results back to them, and then they would give you like a confirmation code that you'd have to type into your phone, which would then complete the process. And if you didn't type the code in and you didn't bother phoning up, on your phone, it would have that constant warning that like, this repair has been done with, with, with non-genuine you know, parts that cannot be verified, blah, 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 blah. So that, that alert was what you got if you didn't phone them up. Um, so finally, now they've just made it so you don't have to call them anymore. You can just run the diagnostic step directly after doing the repair and it will go away, which is how it should have always worked. Uh, I don't know if there was some technical reason why it had to work like that before or if they were just being stingy and they were annoyed that I, they had to do self-service yeah. repair offerings at all and they finally relaxed on on their stance there 
Then they also added the True Depth camera for the iPhone 12 and 13 and the top speaker for those devices. And they expanded some of the M1 Max to some more countries in Europe. This is kind of just the slow march we've seen of the self-service repair program. I mean, it takes a while for new devices to get added. Apple kind of, they removed one of the roadblocks, but there's still some roadblocks like what is it, the 75-pound box of tools that they can yeah. send you, and then you have to send it back. But... You have to rent. Yeah, I know. It's a bit, it's a bit of a pain, but they, they're complying with their legal requirement. Um, and they do say, too, I think a good stat is that they've doubled the number of service locations that can use these parts, so that's nice for people who live in places without Apple stores, but I don't plan on ordering parts to fix my iPhone anytime soon. And the system configuration thing is not going to change that. Yeah, just like when this program is introduced, it's the same price as doing it mm-hmm. through Apple. Like, even if you're out of warranty, right? It's the same prices. Um, but if you do it through Apple, they take on the responsibility of if the thing breaks, they'll fix it for you or get you a replacement device. If you do it yourself through self repair and you, you know, the most of it, like if you're replacing a battery, it's hard to do it wrong, but you can do it wrong. And if you do do it wrong, then you've got a dud, a dud phone and you're, you're out of luck. Whereas if you go to the Apple Store, or as what I do, because I don't really live near Apple Store, you can mail in repairs for free. You can set it up online mm-hmm. through the Apple Store website. They don't really like, they try and hide it, I think. But like if you talk to online chat, they will set it up so that they send you a box, you put your phone in, it goes away. Three days later, it comes back with a new battery in. You know, all sorted. It's, it's so convenient. If you really want to do it yourself, you can, but you're taking on responsibility and not saving any money in the process so they let them do it let them take on the responsibility of needing to replace if something goes wrong let them have the labor you know that's what makes sense to me at least well your friends at the european union this week best pals yes they they said as a a united kingdom resident we love the eu yeah Yeah, they say that even with self-service repair program i guess that iphone batteries should still be easier for the users themselves to replace so this is kind of a broad set of guidelines that the eu has now approved and voted in favor of focused on batteries portable batteries batteries in electric vehicles so it's pretty wide ranging but for us the part that is key is the portable batteries which the exact language is it should be easier for customers to easily remove and replace batteries in things like their iPhone. The obvious question, though, is if Apple already complies by this with self-service or if there's more they're going to have to do, design changes they'll have to make. I mean, we've seen the EU force Apple to do some pretty big things in the past. And some pretty big things coming up, right? With USB-C on the iPhone and the Digital Markets Act, meaning that sideloading is coming to the iPhone in some, you know, some some regard next year. so, yeah, I mean, the EU definitely carries weight and Apple has to comply with the law. In this case, I'm not sure. Sh- it's obvious, like, the problem with these things is they announce the guidelines, but then it's like it's not coming to, like, re- you know, f- enforce legislation for, like, another five years or whatever. So it's, right. it's a far away thing in, in the start. It will get refined and watered down probably by the time it actually gets put into law. The USB-C thing took, like, a decade to actually come through. But in this case, I'm not sure if, like... If you look at the wording, I mean, you did you did the story and you put this block quote. It says, a portable battery should be considered to be removed by the end user when it can be removed with the use of commercially available tools and without requiring the use of specialized tools unless they are provided free of charge. So with a self-service repair program, 
you have to rent the tools, but then I guess if Apple just made it so you you got refunded at the end, then they would comply. Like it doesn't really mm-hmm. like you know when it when the, obviously the you know the headline is the EU wants replaceable batteries in your devices, but practically speaking, the actual letter of the thing just says about you have to be able to replace it yourself. And I mean, the self right. repair program basically offers that. Like, you don't need the, the iPhone doesn't have what you would call by definition a replaceable battery, but you can replace the battery via the self-service repair program. So maybe they're already in compliance, and this is a big, you know, load of nothing. But and I do think, like, since the days of like the iPhone six, seven, Apple has made it easier. I oh, mean, definitely, yeah. So maybe they saw this coming, but I mean, in the case of like the USB C thing, you. You would think that Apple was probably planning to switch over anyway. At some point, yeah. At some point. But if they have to make changes for this, it'll be... They are, they are definitely not going to make these changes on their own. It'll be purely in response to these new yeah, rules. Yeah, they're not going to put a compartment on the back of the phone that exactly. you pop out a battery into. But I'm not actually sure, just based on the wording, whether they actually need to do that or not. We yeah. won't know for a long time until this gets a bit further along. I think some people were saw the headlines that some other places were using and thought this would mean they could carry around an extra battery in their pocket and swap it into their iPhone while they were out yeah, and about. It doesn't but say that's not going to be the case. It just basically yeah. says replaceable, yeah. yeah. We'll see what happens when this finally turns into law in five years' time. <laughs> and on more things that Apple doesn't want to do, third-party watch faces. So this is something that I think everybody's kind of been asking for for the entire lifespan of the Apple Watch. But this week, Kevin Lynch and Deirdre called back to Apple executives on the Apple Watch project. They finally kind of addressed this and basically argued that the watch face is the most important part of the Apple Watch experience, and they want to ensure that the experience works perfectly every time, especially when there's a major watchOS update. So by Apple controlling... The entire watch face experience this is what they're able to basically guarantee for the user they'll take and, care and, of it and all. they touted like well you can customize it with complications from third-party apps and developers can make watch face configurations that are shareable and you can download them quote unquote for the internet but obviously you know they're still using the base face provided by apple in those cases some of this i think is like you sell what you have as in apple's not gonna yeah. stand here and say that third-party faces are great when they don't have them yet um and so they have to say, like, yeah, well, you know, we're controlling the experience. And so, you, you know, third-party faces aren't a thing we prioritize. But I think it's it's not hard to see that technologically a third-party watch face isn't that far away from a third-party app or a widget that's on the iPhone home screen, for instance, that this year is mm-hmm. even interactive. Like, they can obviously achieve this when they when they want to. And they probably will do at some point. It's just a thing that they haven't done yet. So they don't say they can. And I think if and their their specific thing was like talking about how like what if they change something in, in the operating system in terms of behavior, like the addition of the yeah. swipe up gesture to reveal widgets and that would break some watch faces. But I actually think with WatchOS ten, the watch face themselves, behavior wise, are almost as more independent than ever than the way the OS works. Mm-hmm. So like they could just say third party watch faces, you can do what you want, but system edge gestures are reserved. And so any swipes from left, right, top or bottom you're not going to get access to, which is exactly how iPhone apps work, right? Because you swipe up from the bottom of the screen and it does the home indicator. Instead, you swipe down from the top of the screen and it does a notification center. So they could apply that exact same policy to a watch face. And, you know, in 
in watchOS versions gone by, there was more integration between the face and the system. So like the the honeycomb grid would have the clock face in the center. And as you like scrolled the crown, it would like animate and transition back and forward, which required a bit more of a closer tie to the OS with watchOS 10. There's no there's no watch face on the honeycomb grid anymore. So that doesn't happen. That transition is completely gone. Every watch face now is the same like blur transition when you go back to the clock face. Um, something like time travel using the digital crown. That's all gone now. So you, a third party watch face doesn't have to worry about that. The only things that, and, and also the edge swipes to switch between watch faces quickly. You know, like on previous ones, you could go to like left and right. When you're looking at a watch face, it would like, yeah. that's not there anymore. That's gone in watchOS 10. Like, I feel like they're more set up than ever to do a third party watch face system where you, the, the developers can make watch faces and Apple can approve them and they can have a process and they can say, you know, if it, if it uses too much battery or whatever, we reject it, blah, 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 blah. And um, interaction wise, you are just like all our faces now. You can't respond to the crown. You can't respond to edge swipe gestures. Otherwise, have at it. So like, I definitely think there's a path here to this happening. And I'm, I would be gobsmacked if they never do it. They, you know, go back a few years it would seem sacrosanct that they would ever let you put widgets on the home screen or really customize the home screen or the lock screen because that was considered the face of the iPhone. And sure enough, yeah. know, enough iOS versions go by and they're like, you know, we think customizing your phone's a great <laughs> idea. So they're going to get to it on the watch eventually. The whole excuse that they used about watchOS updates break breaking third-party watch faces just doesn't really line up. I mean, first and foremost, that's the point of betas. And anyone who's running a beta is taking that risk and developers can fix the problems. But like you said, I mean, you can do widgets on the home screen, but also now on the lock screen, which I kind of thought was even more unimpossible than ever coming to the home screen. Mm -hmm. But I do think the addition of widgets on the Apple Watch, it does, at least for me, address some of the limitations of the watch face designs that I've kind of been annoyed with in the past because you can free up complications for other information or choose a design that doesn't have complication slots and just swipe up to view the wid your information in the widgets. Yeah. Which, I mean, I get, like, moving more things to the widgets, kind of like you said, it's just more reason to open the floodgates on watch faces even more. Just look at the Snoopy face that they're introducing this year, right? Yeah. So many brands could have something that works exactly like a Snoopy face and people would absolutely love it. And so if they ever, like... They at least need to do some program where more watch faces come to the watch because only doing two or three a year is just not is just not enough. And so you know, if they really don't want to do an all you know open the floodgates, anyone can make an, a watch face just like anybody can make an app. Then they should do a program where they partner with you know thirty brands a year to make faces or something, or like they go to trusted trusted developers that they know you know make quality software. And they're like, do you want to make a watch face? Blah, blah, blah. They need some program where you, there's some collection of stuff that's more than the 30 or whatever they have plus three or four every single year like it's just not enough you need more variety it could even be like carplay apps right now where you have to get that special entitlement to mm -hmm. have your app show on carplay because it'd be one thing if apple was actively like adding new watch faces all the time but i mean most apple watches that you see people in the world using they're using either the photos face or like one of like the infograph modular faces. Modular ones, yeah. The watch faces that have been there since the very start. Like Yeah, Apple said the photos face is the most popular. Yeah. And that's obviously contributed to the watch OS ten design. So now you can use the photos face, but you can still get information by 
swiping up and getting access to the widget stuff. And last but not least, more ads are coming to the App Store, sort of, but not or at least really. Different ads. <laughs> yeah, it's the same ad slot that's been on the Today View for a while now. But what Apple is doing is moving it up. So you can see it right from the Today View, which is basically the home screen of the App Store without having to scroll down. Then they're also doing some changes to the approval process for these this ad slot so advertisers can submit their campaigns and get them approved more quickly. And this isn't iOS 17. This is coming next month for anyone running 16.4 or later. And iPhone only. And no, iPhone only. The iPad. And yeah. any, any existing today tab app campaigns will automatically be converted. So Apple's not waiting, going to wait around for advertisers to make that change themselves. Yeah, and the, the, the speed up to the approval process is because the new ad format, like the old ad format would have, it would look like a standard car, a card that's on the Today tab with a big photo and like a big image. Well, the new format doesn't have a big image. So there's less for the app, the Apple ad review team to actually approve. That's why it can be submitted faster. So now it's just all you see is the app icon, which has probably already been approved you know, with the app itself. Yeah. And then the title and the subtitle. And then when you click through, you then get the same customized product page that you had before. But the main tab on the Today tab now doesn't have any custom artwork, which probably just relieves the amount of labor required in terms of ad campaign approval. Um, so it's been a lot faster for advertisers to make a campaign and do it because uh, they, they don't have to make an image for that and Apple doesn't have to approve it. Uh, in terms of like advertising on the App Store, I mean, out of all the changes they've made to App, Review, to App Store search ads, this isn't the most effective offensive one in the world because in some ways it's like like yeah now it's always visible without him to scroll but it is just a smaller ad so like yeah again you know you're getting a bit of tit for tat there uh, i don't think it's anywhere near as offensive as like last year when they rolled out ads to the product pages of other developers yeah. that was bad especially when they, they were then capitalized on by all the gambling and casino apps yep. which we've still not really had a firm policy decision on they just quote paused it but then they've never followed up with new the conditions so that's just kind of become the rule um so now you still have ads on developer product pages they just don't they just don't come from the gambling and casino category uh this the today tab is more like apple's product space right because it is their tab it is their app store so if they want to dirty up with some ads go ahead uh the, the product page thing for other apps felt like a step too far uh the only thing, the other thing I'll say on this kind of topic is do you remember last year like Bloomberg had a story about how like more ads are coming to Apple devices Mm -hmm. um, they said they were coming to Apple Maps. They said they were going to do like, maybe come to Spotlight and the Apple Bookstore. Well, at least so far this year, we're halfway through the year. None of those programs have happened. So I don't know if they, you know, just not happening or they're still coming or Apple maybe saw the response to the casino problem with the developer yeah. pages and delayed it a bit. Because um, like announcing this ad slot this week would be a perfect time to announce. Oh, and you know, also be able to do ads in the Maps app, for instance. Uh, but they haven't announced anything on that regard. So at least for the time being, it's still only App Store ads. When this story came out, I kind of, I realized how very rarely I actually go to the Today tab in the App Store. And obviously, I think it's more common for people who aren't reading about apps all the time on mm -hmm. 9 to 5 Mac. But the Today tab on the App Store has kind of become complicated or hard to hard to view things and find exactly what you want to see and 
it's still an important page for developers because getting their apps on that feature page is important. But at least from my end, I'd rather Apple put ads here than anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I don't browse to it. But obviously, millions of people do just because the iPhone's you know used by millions of people every month. Um, the, with the Today tab, it was more interesting back in 2016 when they first launched it because they it felt like they actually had editorial making like interesting stories every single day. So there was always something new there. More recently, there's a lot of recycling of stuff and a lot of just like, here's five streaming apps to watch or like there's less of the like yeah. blog post style. Oh, here's a discussion Ooh. with this app developer and stuff. So I kind of feel like they've, they've downsized that operation. Um, probably because not many people like read it, which is fair enough, but it just makes it even less interesting for me to check out. When they first kind of did the whole expansion redesign of the App Store with the Today tab and all the editorial stuff, you know, they tried to hire a lot of people from like our little app reviewing world. And since then, it doesn't seem like they've expanded. And in fact, I've heard that a lot of those people who are hired for App Store are now doing editorial for Apple Music and Apple TV, mm. which I think it's a lot harder. There's a lot more new stuff to discover for streaming tv and music than there is in the app store nowadays i mean as a very anecdotal example i just opened the app store on my phone the top slot is watch the season two premiere of and just like that (laughs) tv app so like they basically just promote tv shows in in the app store anyway (laughs) all right so i think that does it mayo i mean i think we went okay for our first official show as co-hosts i think not bad not bad not bad and just give us some time, like we said at the start. It's a change, but we will get there. Uh, if you want to send us feedback, you can do so. Happy hour at 95mac.com. Head to the app or the Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Leave us a rating and a review. In Apple Podcasts, you can find the ad-free version of the show. If you want to hear the same thing every week, but without ads and I think me and Mayo maybe have some things planned for the future for subscribers, maybe. We'll see. Yep, sounds good. And you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon. I'm at Chance H. Miller. And Mayo, where can we find you? I am BZA Mayo. All right. Thanks, Mayo. Bye-bye.